This is a soundscape of original radio recordings from on and around D-Day, the 6th of June, 1944. Unlike our regular mixes, this contains very little in the way of music. This is the home and overseas service of the BBC. If you appreciate this work, please consider supporting Centuries of Sound at patreon.com slash centuriesofsound. This is London calling in the European News Service of the British Broadcasting Corporation. Here is the news. But first, here are some messages for our friends in occupied countries. The Trojan War will not be held. John is growing a very long beard this week. The long sobs of the violins of autumn. Les sanglots longs et violons de l'automne. Wound my heart with a monotonous languor. From the Italian front, a late bulletin reports that Allied armor and motorized infantry roared into Rome, across the Tiber, and into the heart of the city. The departing German forces were exhausted and disorganized, and the eternal city was spared extensive destruction. Crowds of Roman citizens lined the avenues and streets of Rome to cheer the Allied tanks as they rolled through the city. Pope Pius XII appeared on the balcony of St. Peter's to give thanks that the city remained virtually intact. England has become one vast ordnance dump and field park. In every wood and copse, in leafy, dead-end lanes and side roads, often in private gardens, under quarries and embankments, there it all was. Trucks, ambulances, tanks, armoured cars, carriers, jeeps, bulldozers, ducks, vehicles of all kinds. Vast, really vast numbers of them. Right in the midst of it all, just as I'd turned for home, I passed a field where 22 men in khaki shirts and battle dress trousers and heavy hobnail boots were having a quiet knock-up game of cricket. They made me think of Francis Drake and Plymouth Hoe. For the United Nations are determined that in the future no one city and no one race will be able to control the whole of the world. Soldiers, sailors and airmen of the Allied Expeditionary Force, you are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. In company with our brave allies and brothers in arms on other fronts, you will bring about the destruction of the German war machine, the elimination of Nazi tyranny over the oppressed peoples of Europe, and security for ourselves in a free world. Your task will not be an easy one. Your enemy is well-trained, well-equipped, and battle-hardened. He will fight savagely. But this is the year 1944. Much has happened since the Nazi triumphs of 1940-41. The United Nations have inflicted upon the Germans great defeats in open battle, man-to-man. Our air offensive has seriously reduced their strength in the air, and their capacity to wage war on the ground. Our home fronts have given us an overwhelming superiority in weapons and munitions of war, and placed at our disposal great reserves of trained fighting men. The tide has turned. The free men of the world are marching together to victory. 
I have full confidence in your courage, devotion to duty, and skill in battle. We will accept nothing less than full victory. Good luck, and let us all beseech the blessing of Almighty God upon this great and noble undertaking. On the eve of this great adventure, I send my best wishes to every soldier in the Allied team. To us is given the honor of striking a blow for freedom which will live in history. And in the better days that lie ahead, men will speak with pride of our doings. We have a great and a righteous cause. Let us pray that the Lord mighty in battle will go forth with our armies and that his special providence will aid us in the struggle. I want every soldier to know that I have complete confidence in the successful outcome of the operations that we are now about to begin. With stout hearts and with enthusiasm for the contest, let us go forward to victory. All contact with the shore has ended. No one may come aboard, no one may go ashore. In Navy jargon, the ship and all of us aboard here are sealed. We're sealed because we've been told the answers. The answers to the questions that the whole world has been asking for two years and more. Where and how and when. The troops swarmed up the rope ladders last night. Strong, healthy, formidable men. Many of them going into battle for the first time. As you walk along the decks, men are reading or sleeping or talking in small clusters. Across the water, we can hear the jazz from a minesweeper's gramophone. In the wardroom, dinner. From the menu, soup, roast beef and green peas, and apples and cream, it might have been a crossing to Cherbourg in peacetime. And then you realized that your hand was moving just a little sluggishly to your mouth. Your tummy wasn't just where it usually was. The men around you were rather silent, and when they spoke, they were self-conscious. It was a room full of men on the way, wondering, waiting, and listening. Say together, say after me, Teach us, good Lord, to serve thee as thy deservest, to give and not to count the cost, to fight and not to heed the wound, to toil and not to seek for rest. Slowly and majestically, as minesweepers and destroyers curved their way into position, we gave the lead to the other transports. Under a grey sky, we looked at the coast of Britain and watched it slowly grow more dim. On the decks and in the holds, the soldiers were waiting. For the most part, standing about, looking out to sea, talking now and then, and thinking. The ships uh, lying in all directions, just like black shadows on the grey sky, some signaling out to sea, sheltered on the inside from the Germans' eyes, signaling with red lights and blinking code. There are four fires on the shore, looking like pinpoints, winking, smudged by smoke. Now planes are going overhead. That baby was plenty low. The tracer lines keep arcing up into the darkness. 
Very heavy fire now off our stern. Some more ships in that area. Fiery burst. And the flag and steamer is going out. And a diagonal slant. off our port side in the sea. Smoke and flame there. You said it. <laughs> this is the day and this is the hour. The sky is lightning. Lightning over the coast of Europe as we go in. The sun is blazing down brightly now. It's almost like an omen the way it suddenly come out just as we were going in. The whole sky is bright, the sea is a glittering mass of silver, with all these craft of every kind moving across it, and the great battleships in the background blazing away at the shore. Just five minutes before HR, H minus five, and looking straight in towards the coastline of France. Our assault craft are now out of sight, lost in the uh, lowering cloud there by the beaches. Our LCTs are in there, and within a few moments, the first tanks that lead the assault will be on the beaches and opening up with their guns. Now, there's a signal from the flagship. the beaching station. That's the signal for our sailors on board this craft to get ready for the landing. And, of course, for the soldiers down in the holes to get ready with their kit on. Go up onto the deck and down the ramps as we go into shore. I watch the first landing barges hit the beach exactly on the minute of each hour. I was in a 9th Air Force marauder flying at 4,500 feet along 20 miles of the invasion coast. From what I could see during those first few minutes, there was nothing stopping the assault parties from getting ashore. We spent about half an hour over enemy territory. We flew over and bombed some of the coastal fortifications, but except for some light flight from inland positions and from some tanks firing at us, we saw no enemy gunfire. I was crouching the barge, thought I didn't show it, okay, this is it. So I jumped up, grabbed my gear, jumped into the water. It was a long way from the shore, further than I thought it had been, about 300 yards. Jumped into the water, it was deeper than I thought. I started to swim. We eventually made the seawall. Just as we get alongside the tank fellows, we thought we were pretty good then. A Jerry 88mm gun hit our tank and blew us the hell out of it. When we actually beached, the, we were lucky enough to go between two of the mines which the uh, Germans had put on stakes 
as uh, one of the beach defences. The craft, uh, one of the mines um, came up along our starboard side, and the craft which beached immediately on our port side hits the next one. Then the struggle across the soft sand. Five minutes that will always be vivid in my mind. Shells were falling on the beaches, mines still exploding. The whole beach covered with small craft. Men at work organizing the beaches already. Bulldozers widening the exits and laying the wire carpet. Ammunition and tanks and supplies and vehicles and guns coming ashore as far as the eye could see. These boys are, are apparently having uh, a pretty tough time in here on the beaches. It's not very pleasant. Uh, it's exposed. And it must have been a rugged fight to get it. Columns of white smoke which are rising from it. And further up at the end of this beach, you can see another huge column of white smoke which has apparently been caused by naval gunfire. Looking out to sea, all we can see of the vast invasion fleet which is assembled for us are the silhouettes of the big warships, the uh, battleships and cruisers which have been putting uh, a steady bombardment against the enemy positions all day. The troops are well dug in here along the seawall which is partly covered by sand. Uh, they're sitting down now, uh, most of them, dug deep into the ground, close, uh, as close as they can to the seawall to protect themselves from the enemy shelling. It seemed to me that uh, they just didn't seem to worry about it. They went ashore, slowly walked around, uh, took the jobs, just as if they were on 42nd Street, just like I go out down sometimes for a super window shopping. Well, I never heard them look. I didn't understand. They don't cry. They don't worry about pain. Or they don't ask for any help. They just sit there, try to get a hang on to their jaw or whatever part of them is wounded. Who is uh, one of the sailors has just come in with a handful of sand because he heard me say a while ago that what I wanted to do most of all was just to get ashore and reach down and take up a handful of sand and say, This is France, and I've got it in my hand. France at last after four years. Jamford? Uh, how, how does it feel to, to just to reach down and grab a piece of sand and say, I'm grabbing French soil? Huh? Well, it, uh, since I was born in France, it had special meaning to me. Were you born in France? Yes. Where were you born? In Calais. You were? Well, that's not very far from here. Well, it has a special meaning for me, too, as you can imagine. Have you got some? We've got to save this. We've got to put it in a, in a bottle or something. This is the home and overseas service of the BBC. CBS World News, Bob Trout speaking. And again, we bring you the available reports, all of them from German sources, on what the Berlin radio calls the invasion. There is still no Allied confirmation from any source. The correspondents who rushed to the War Department in Washington soon after the first German broadcast was heard were told that our War Department had no information on the German reports. There's been no announcement of any sort from Allied headquarters in London. The first news of the German announcement reached this country at 12.37 a.m. Eastern Wartime. The Associated Press recorded this broadcast and immediately pointed out that it could be one which Allied leaders have warned us to expect from the Germans. Now, it should be remembered, of course, that the Germans are quite capable of faking this entire series of reports. Their main reason for doing so, in addition to trying to smoke out Allied plans, would be to try to start a premature uprising by the resistance movements along the Channel Coast. But the French and the Belgians and the Dutch have all been warned about this possibility repeatedly. 
And you will recall that Prime Minister Winston Churchill some time ago warned that we could expect false alarms or diversionary feints before the big show began. We must uh, begin by assuming the, or by understanding the possibility that these German reports may be an outright German lie. We must also take into account the possibility that they may be a series of feints intended to divert the German defense and to draw the German forces to other places than those in which we actually intend to make a serious attack. This is Robert St. John in the NBC newsroom in New York. Ladies and gentlemen, we may be approaching a fateful hour. All night long, bulletins have been pouring in from Berlin claiming that D-Day is here, claiming that the invasion of Western Europe has begun. But this is the year 1944. Much has happened since the Nazi triumphs of 1940-41. The United Nations have inflicted upon the Germans great defeat in open battle, man to man. Our air offensive has seriously reduced their strength in the air and their capacity to wage war on the ground. Early Tuesday morning, numerous landing craft and light warships were observed in the area between the mouth of the Somme and the eastern coast of Normandy. At the same time, paratroops were dropped from numerous aircraft on the northern tip of the Normandy Peninsula. From where I am, standing between the two pilots of this glider, I can see that the navigation lights of the tug in front of us, and off to left and right, the navigation lights of other tugs and other gliders bound on the same mission. Circling above from time to time, I can see the lights of the fighter screen, which is protecting us. And looking back down the glider, there are seated, although I can't see them in the half-light, officers and men, all laden up with equipment so heavily that they can barely walk. But they've got to carry with them the means by which they can fight the moment they land. It's just about nine o'clock and a whole mass of gliders has just come in, having been towed across the channel from Britain. They've received a particularly severe welcome from the German ACAC defences and the flak has been going up from all around us. I can see about four or five coming in through the trees, skimming very low over the, the ploughed field and coming in to touch down. There'll barely be room for them. While we have been here, we have just seen one of the strangest and most remarkable sights of this invasion so far. Two great fleets of over a hundred gliders have gone overhead, towed by C-47 transports, who are certainly proving the workhorses of this invasion. They've hauled them right over the beaches, and the second batch are droning over now. I can see them. They're casting off the gliders as they circle around over the beach, and the transports are circling around and beginning to, to, to make off of it. And here comes another flight, the third flight of gliders, which uh, is being pulled in. I can't count how many of them there are. They're coming in over the beach here. More and more and more of these glider-borne uh, troops are coming in. These gliders are coming in towed very slowly by the big C-47s in what is apparently an unending stream. This is Chester Wilmot broadcasting from a glider bound for France and invasion. We've just crossed over the coast of France. And all around us along the coast, Akak fire is going up, away to the right, the way off to the left. 
Right in front of us, there's nothing coming up at all. I can see away on our right, the river, which is our main guide for coming into the landing zone, which is on the left of the river. And there now I can see the, the light, which is to guide us in to our main landing zone. We're over the enemy coast now, and the run-in has started. One minute, 30 seconds, red light, green light, and out, out, get on, get out, get out. Out fast into the cool night. Out, out into the air over France. And we know that the dropping zone is obstructed. We're jumping, in fact, into fields covered with poles. But I hit my chute and lower my kit bag, which suspends on the end of a 40-foot rope from my harness. And then the ground comes up to hit me, and I find myself in the middle of a cornfield. The paratroops are landing. They're landing all around me as I speak. They've come in from the sea, and they're fluttering down, red, white, and blue parachutes fluttering down, and they're just about the best thing that we've seen for a good many hours. They're showering in. There's no other word for it. We dropped at 10 to 1 in the morning. There was a moon and some drifting clouds. Just a perfect night for dropping. We landed east of the air. Funny thing, I was number 13 in the first plane. The 13th man to land in France. Well, there was... Um... About five gliders coasted into the uh, same end of the field as I did. And uh, when my glider came to rest, I was within 15 feet of a enemy reconnaissance tank column. Quite a spot to be in. What would you think of a time like that? Well, I was pinned in and I couldn't move. I talked to the passengers in a low tone of voice and told them what was in front of us. And uh, told them to hit the ditch if they could. Because I couldn't move, in about 15 seconds they started the motors up on the tanks and moved off. Uh, they moved past the uh, other park gliders and the boys were out around them, didn't fire a shot. Uh, and then you were in the clear? We were in the clear for the time being, but uh, there were snipers and machine gun nests all around the field. And uh, they had been shooting at us on the way in. Uh, we had... Uh, uh, most of the fields in France have uh, ditches around them to make a good trench. So we crawled around in those uh, trenches, set up guns to ward off any attack. This is London. London calling in the home, overseas, and European services of the BBC and through United Nations Radio Mediterranean. And this is John Snag speaking. Supreme Headquarters, Allied Expeditionary Force, have just issued communique number one, and in a few seconds I will read it to you. Under the command of General Eisenhower, Allied naval forces, supported by strong air forces, began landing Allied armies this morning on the northern coast of France. I'll repeat that communique. Communique number one. Under the command of General Eisenhower, Allied naval forces, supported by strong air forces, began landing Allied armies this morning on the northern coast of France. Uh, and now we have just been informed that we can expect in a very few seconds, in a very few seconds, a very important broadcast from the British capital. And so now... We take you to London.
stationary force. The text of communique number one will be released to the press and radio of the United Nations in ten seconds. Repeat, ten seconds from now. Command of General Eisenhower, Allied naval forces, supported by strong air forces, began landing Allied armies this morning on the northern coast of France. The communique will be repeated. Good morning, everybody. We have just had the first communique from General Eisenhower's headquarters on the invasion. Here is its text. Under the command of General Eisenhower, Allied naval forces, supported by strong air forces, began landing Allied armies this morning on the northern coast of France. Men and women of the United States, this is a momentous hour in world history. This is the invasion of Hitler's Europe, the zero hour of the Second Front. The men of General Dwight Eisenhower are leaving their landing barges, fighting their way up the beaches into the fortress of Nazi Europe. The unsubstantiated claim was backed up at 3.32 a.m. from Supreme Allied Headquarters, Colonel R. Ernest Dupuy, General Eisenhower's press aide, said, Under the command of General Eisenhower, Allied naval forces... Supported by strong air forces, began landing Allied armies this morning on the northern coast of France. This was it. This was the moment the entire world had awaited for so many heartbreaking years. In a suburban home, almost anywhere in the United States... Sorry I woke you up, darling. No, of course not. You know... I always thought when the flash about the second front came through, I'd, well, I'd stand up and cheer. It's funny. I don't want to cheer at all. Neither do I. I feel so helpless just sitting here. When you think of all those kids going across the channel, I want to, I want to do something for them. I know what I'm going to do. What? It'll help too, dear. I'm sure it will. I'm going to pray to God, darling. I'm going to pray to Almighty God. Ladies and gentlemen, I will digress to say that the next few sentences will be semi-numerous. That the script has been censored. There are ships in the task forces which are striking, British, Canadian, and American. They range from big tube carriers and supply ships down to landing craft. This is John W. Van der Kirk in London. The announcement has just been made that the invasion of Western Europe has begun. The feints and diversions promised by Winston Churchill and hinted at by the military experts have now been relegated to the limbo of dead words. Or as a million people will say today, this is really it. This is the Queen's move, straight across the board. The astronomical numbers of planes that the weeks past have been pulverizing rod by rod and yard by yard. Every German position from literally the beginning of shallow water to far within the hinterland of France. 
And now, with close naval support, then followed by the paratroopers, the landing boats, the infantry. Once again, this is Columbia's news headquarters in New York City, and we are continuing our coverage of the invasion, which, as you know, has now officially begun. That long broadcast we had well, it came directly from, from England, not from London. It came from somewhere in England, the headquarters, the supreme headquarters of the Allied Expeditionary Forces, which are familiarly known as SHAFE. Quiet settled in the plane. These men had done their talking. Now they were grim and silent. Just to identify the speaker for you, ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to Wright Bryant representing the Combined Allied Networks, speaking to us from Allied headquarters in England and giving us a description of the takeoff of the airborne troops from the field from which they took off on the invasion of the continent. And now back to the voice of Wright Bryant. For weeks now, the Allied Supreme Command has been warning French patriots to be on their guard, to be ready. Momentarily, we interrupt this description of Wright Bryant being broadcast from the British Isles to give you this bulletin that's come in on the International News Service here in New York. It says, at 4.10 a.m. Eastern Wartime today, German broadcasts reported fighting between German and Allied troops 10 miles inland from the coast of Normandy. DNB said that Allied troops had been reinforced at the mouth of the Seine at dawn. You must remember that this is a German broadcast which is reported by INS, but it is the first word of any fighting inland at all, and the German, this German broadcast says 10 miles inland. And now we return to the description of Wright Bryant speaking from Supreme Headquarters in England. Parachute. The small fields look peaceful with their orderly hedgerows. It almost seems you could see the furrows. And now here's a bulletin from Washington. Headquarters of the European Theater of Operations reports to the U.S. War Department that Allied aircraft covering the invasion are hitting any target which has any bearing on the strength of the armies at the front. La bataille suprême est engagée. Après tant de combats, de fureur, de douleur, voici venu le choc décisif. C'est la bataille de France et c'est la bataille de la France. This is the BBC Home Service. Here is a special bulletin read by John Snag. D-Day has come. Early this morning, the Allies began the assault on the northwestern face of Hitler's European fortress. The first official news came just after half past nine, when Supreme Headquarters of the Allied Expeditionary Force, usually called SHAPE from its initials, issued communique number one. This said, under the command of General Eisenhower, Allied naval forces supported by strong air forces began landing Allied armies this morning on the northern coast of France. I watched the first landing barges hit the beach exactly on the minute of each hour. I was in a 9th Air Force marauder flying at 4,500 feet along 20 miles of the invasion coast. You'll note that he said that the first landings took place at 6.40 a.m. English summer time. Uh, the sun at this uh, time of year rises about 6.30 a.m. English summertime, so that means that the landings were made immediately after sunrise. The doors were closed, and the commanding officer announced that the invasion had begun. He said that since midnight, three hours before our paratroopers, some 20,000 of them, had been landing in France. The men cheered. 
Uh, here's an interesting bit of news. The German DNB agency has not yet informed the German people through the German domestic press or radio of the Allied invasion of northern France. And this was more than four hours after this same DNB agency had told the European press outside Germany of the invasion and after the German Transocean Agency had moved a similar wireless dispatch for overseas consumption. Hitler, according to this Reuters dispatch, is surrounded by his staff, including four field marshals, and is believed to have moved his headquarters to some place in northern France. That's what the Reuters correspondent says. I'm getting a few signals, and I believe that in a few moments we shall have another broadcast from London, but uh, uh, it seemed for a moment as if it was about to come momentarily, but uh, I see now that there may be a few more seconds before it does. Well, to continue talking, there's a great deal to talk about, especially as I... I'm sure that our audience is now being augmented. A great many of you are tuning in for the first time. You missed our all-night broadcast that has been going on here since uh, 12.30 in the morning, approximately. Uh, hello, Admiral. Hello, Admiral. Hello, Hello, New York. Hello, New York. Hello, New York. Hello, New York. Hello Paul. Uh, I just thought that perhaps the audience would be interested in how we're setting up these uh, pool broadcasts. And since uh, we understand there is no more pool copy available at this moment, I thought we'd have a little conversation with you. Well, Paul, what we're doing is this. We're going to continue to pool for the next hour or two, uh, simply trying to move the material as fast as it comes in to all four of the networks. These heartbreaking months of expectation, of false rumors, of high hopes that never materialized, came to an end early this morning when General Eisenhower himself talked to them and told them that the hour had come. His broadcast to the people of the temporarily conquered countries contained only 500 words. But those 500 words meant more to the people of Europe than the millions of words they have been forced to listen to from the voices of their temporary masters. However, he turned on his radio and could get nothing but a series of dance bands at that time. Well, he said if he was trying to get a dance band, you couldn't get one. Now you want news, all you can get is dance bands. The flash release had the date June 6, 1944. Most of them, those with sons there now, were in France more than 25 years ago. They have been through it all, and now they have the same faith for their loved ones. These 26 words. Under the command of General Eisenhower, Allied naval forces, supported by strong air forces, began landing Allied armies this morning on the northern coast of France. It was announced soon after this communique that General Montgomery was in charge of the army group carrying out the assault. This army group includes British, Canadian, and United States forces. Berlin reports that the area of Caen appears to be the first focal point in the fighting. And that in this area, German troops are in fierce combat with British and American units landed from the air and the sea. Caen, capital of the department of Calvados, stands on the river Ong, about ten miles inland behind the flat coast. It tells of an American sergeant packing concentrated destruction who peered into the darkness toward France and said, they can't stop us. His four words from an invasion front dispatched to the War Department were uttered as the greatest military operation of history began, very quietly and without tension, from a small British town whose inhabitants had little idea that anything unusual was going on. For an hour after the broadcast of communique number one, I played town crier to a London generally unaware that France had been invaded. 
I rode and walked through the Strand, Fleet Street, past St. Paul's, along the Thames Embankment to the Houses of Parliament and Westminster Abbey, up to Piccadilly Circus and other parts of so-called downtown London, asking people here and there what they thought of the news. In most cases, I found out that I had to report the news before getting any comment. It looked like London any morning between 9.30 and 10.30. The streets comparatively deserted, soldiers of all nations ambling about, street cleaners running their brushes along the curbs. I asked a taxi driver to take me around the city because I wanted to see how people were reacting to the news. Incidentally, I asked him, have you heard the news? I heard something about it, he said, but I don't know whether it's official. I assured him it was because I had just returned from the studio where the communique was broadcast. Waiting for a traffic light, we drew alongside a car driven by a girl wearing the uniform of France. I leaned out and said, what do you think of the news? What news, she asked. The Allies have landed in France. All she said was, thank God. People of Western Europe. A landing was made this morning on the coast of France by troops of the Allied Expeditionary Force. This landing is part of the concerted United Nations plan for the liberation of Europe, made in conjunction with our great Russian allies. I have this message for all of you. Although the initial assault may not have been made in your own country, the hour of your liberation is approaching. The clothes they, were, they wore neatly or carelessly were mostly of 1939 and 1940 vintage. The lipstick the girls wore or forgot to wear was of a hard, chalky substance, war stuff. The tiredness in their faces came not from a bad night, but from almost five years of working in the front lines of war. You felt like shouting to those weary people, it's happened, the invasion has started, because that's what these people have been working and fighting for, fighting beside anti-aircraft guns, fighting with fire hoses, fighting with industrial tools, since one day almost exactly four years ago when the tattered fugitives from Dunkirk reached these shores. Now, this is Ed Harker just back from a flight over part of the battle area with the 9th Air Force. The invasion of continental Europe from the west, and we now know it's in full swing this morning, was undoubtedly the most closely guarded secret of this war. Part of the story can now be told from the correspondent's point of view. We all know how General Eisenhower, before the invasion of Sicily, took the war correspondents into his confidence, told them of his plans, even went so far as to give them a pretty good idea of when it would take place. Not so this time. If any correspondent was taken into the general's confidence, it would be a surprise indeed to some who have enjoyed this privilege in the past. During the last few weeks, as the world was forewarned, there have been feints. Correspondents, some of the best, were called by phone, told to report at a certain place, were then escorted to points far removed from London, were wined and dined, in a manner of speaking, and then just as abruptly sent back to London. One group was kept out of circulation for ten days. Just a second, here's one more bulletin. Here we are, another bulletin that says big guns on the French coast opened fire across the Strait of Dover shortly after midday today. A salvo of four shells was seen to explode. And here's another one. The German Transocean News Agency says that 
Allied paratroopers have landed on the islands of Jersey and Guernsey, west of the Norman Peninsula. Headed for that target on the French coast. Below, as my eyes got used to the light, I counted upwards of 60 invasion boats. There were more later, hundreds. Above, the skies were filled with an infinity of planes of all descriptions. Beyond, closer to the French coast, allied ships of war were blasting the targets along the invasion beaches. That was the picture as France loomed through the sunbeamed haze and clouds. And then shortly, too shortly in fact, we were over the coast, heading toward our target, only three minutes away. Those who have common cause with the enemy will be removed. As France is liberated from her oppressors, you yourselves will choose your representatives and the government under which, which you wish to live. Millions of American boys are over there taking part in this operation. Uh, your neighbor's boy, maybe your own boy, your husband, uh, is over there. And so we know how vitally interested all of America is, and the National Broadcasting Company is determined to give you every word of news that we can get from that front. From While I saw some German planes go over Europe today, the mastery of the skies is ours. Your guess is as good as mine as to where the Luftwaffe is. But Prime Minister Churchill today, as it's already been pointed out, said 11,000 Allied planes are available. It's estimated 7,000 of these were used this morning. 5,000 bombers of all types and 2,000 fighters, or in fighter strength alone, equal to all those available to Germany. The British ambassador, the tall, gaunt Lord Halifax, is the first diplomat to make a direct statement on the invasion. Lord Halifax says that he has no doubt that we will have very tough fighting on the continent of Europe. But Lord Halifax goes on to say that we all have complete confidence in General Eisenhower, complete confidence in his deputy commanders, and complete confidence in all our allied troops. I wonder what they're thinking about. I wonder what they feel about everything that's going to come. Let's ask one of them. Hey, soldier, come over here, will you? Yes. What's your name? Uh, Staff Sergeant Alexander Hant. Alexander Hant. Where do you come from, Alex? From Chicago, Illinois. From Chicago, huh? Yes. What do you feel about this thing now that you're on? Well, sir, I feel a lot better since uh, we're on the assessment air. They seem like we're doing more good than we was on the last night on. What was the last one? It was an LSC. So that was one of the maneuvers, was it? Yes, sir, it was. Maneuver. Is this one any different than that one? Uh, yes, it is. It seems like we have a lot more equipment than we did have the last time. More guns, I suppose. Yes. You think this is going to be the real thing this time? Well, I really can't say. You think so? I don't know. <laughs> Does it worry you? No, it doesn't worry me any. You aren't scared? No. You're all set? Yes. Well, that's fine, Staff Sergeant Pat. The beach today, on D-Day, we just come in, we caught a ride in a small boat which came in from our LST loaded with a thousand pounds of TNT, half a ton of high explosive on this beach which is still under considerable enemy gunfire. 
The newspaper said, no one said good morning today. Everywhere it was only, did you hear? They have landed, they have landed. No one asks, how are you? But cries instead, it has come. In Geneva, the news flash burst from the radios and seized each person as if he had been shaken by the shoulder. In every public square, gesticulating groups gather who can talk of nothing else. We have some reaction now from Moscow, which I'd like to pass along to you. Russians who learned of the invasion today, we are told in this dispatch, literally danced with glee. For them, it meant the end of three years of anxious waiting for the thrust from the West. A bulletin. London, a naval officer just returned to Supreme Allied headquarters from the French invasion beaches, reports that all main points have been gained and that reinforcements are pouring across the channel in an unprecedented stream. We resume our scheduled program. An eternal beacon lighting man's way through the darkness of time. Brought to you by General Mills. You know, now that the invasion is actually underway, I don't believe there's one of us who doesn't feel a deep personal obligation to every man on the invasion front. We all feel that nothing is too much for us to do to back up our men that nothing we could do could even compare with what they're doing for us. Well, there are many things we can do, but one thing we must do right away is put every dollar we don't absolutely have to use for food and rent and doctor's bills into war bonds. Yes, we must give our men our all-out financial support right away. For the greater the battle, the greater their need of our money for equipment. Ici, Londres. Les Français parlent au français. People of Western Europe. A landing was made this morning on the coast of France by troops of the Allied Expeditionary Force. This landing is part of the concerted United Nations plan for the liberation of Europe, made in conjunction with our great Russian allies. I have this message for all of you. Although the initial assault may not have been made in your own country, the hour of your liberation is approaching. By now, as we fly across the white-capped channel, we have a bridge of ships from England to France. They range from mighty battle wagons to tiny, knack-like PT boats, and they include all manner of transports and landing craft. Yes, this is D-Day, H-Hour, indeed. Briefly, the situation at the moment is this. We have landed, and from all indications, have things well in hand. Most of the details as to exactly what's going on come from the Germans, because, naturally, our commanders are going to use utmost caution in releasing information which the enemy might not have. However, Admiral Ernest King, the commander of the United States fleet, said this morning in Washington, after a conference with President Roosevelt, that, from his viewpoint, the invasion of Europe is doing all right so far. The grand assault on the continent, as a matter of fact, was scheduled for yesterday, but it was postponed until today because of bad weather. Prime Minister Churchill, as you know, has said that heavy fighting is taking place in the town of Caen, about ten miles inland from the French coast. And that's the invasion news to this minute. Thank you again, Alan. Well, friends, the liberation of Western Europe is underway. 
Alan Jackson, one of Columbia's news editors, has supplied us with the latest news on this greatest of all military operations. It can't be repeated too often. The fighting that lies ahead will be extremely bitter. Let's all offer up a prayer for victory. Under the command of General Eisenhower, Allied naval forces, supported by strong air forces, began landing Allied armies this morning on the northern coast of France. The weather has not been kind during the first phase of the operation. It was bad when the attack began, but the weathermen said it would improve, and they were right. Many of the men must have had an uncomfortable passage. The air cover had to go in low. But tonight it seems that the weathermen were right. The opinion here seems to be that we are over the first two or three hurdles, but there are many more to come. And Reich's Marshal Hermann Goering declared in an order of the day to the German air forces today that the invasion of Western Europe must be fought off even if it means the death of the Luftwaffe. This is London. In a few moments, His Majesty the King will speak to his people at home and overseas. He will also be heard throughout the United States of America. Four years ago, our nation and empire stood alone against an overwhelming enemy with our backs to the wall. A testing as never before in our history. In God's providence, we survived that test. The spirit of the people, resolute, dedicated, burnt like a bright flame, lit surely from those unseen fires which nothing can quench. Once more, if the team has to be safe. years from today. The scene is a schoolroom on a beautiful day in June, June the 6th, 2044. And you and I are long since in our graves. And the furniture around us in our living rooms at this moment has been lost or become expensive antiques in the art stores. 
And those newspapers with their huge headlines that are now lying near the radio set will have become yellow, brittle documents preserved in the great museums of this day, 100 years from now. This is Don Hollenbeck in the NBC newsroom in New York. First, two late bulletins from London. The German high command says tonight that great enemy formations appeared at the coast of northern France between Calais and Dunkirk this morning. The great struggle on the northern coast of France has begun. A Nazi broadcast quotes the high command. If true, this is a threatened landing on a new point of the French coast. The German DNB news agency reports tonight that Marshal Karl von Rundstedt and Marshal Erwin Rommel, Nazi commanders in Western Europe, are on the spot of the developments. Reports on invasion are pouring in, mostly from the enemy in recent minutes, and the enemy is busy making admissions. Admissions that our troops are pouring ashore at many places along the Normandy coast. A German broadcast says Allied parachutists have now taken over an airfield in the Boulogne-Calais area, along the Dover Strait. That, of course, would be in an entirely new section of the French coast, more than 50 miles up from the earlier announced invasion area, which stretches all the way from Le Havre to Cherbourg. This new German report places the Allies in action directly across the strait from the cliffs of Dover, which, if true, would mean that the invasion is spreading out over a wide area. In addition, our men have a weapon which our enemies cannot have, the knowledge that God is on our side. To us, D-Day means divine help, and H-Hour, the hopes of all of us for a speedy victory. And here's a story overheard by our NBC monitors. The Nazis are suppressing news of the progress of the invasion and withholding the facts from the German people. Radio Atlantic, the German secret transmitter, says in a broadcast monitored this afternoon by NBC. What scant news that is put out by the German home radio is very confused and depressing. The people of Berlin have gathered in the streets in whispering nuts, wondering where the next blow will fall. They know that nightfall and the hours of darkness now ensuing will mean more landings. Their prime question is, where? The clandestine transmitter, located somewhere in Germany, often has accurate reports of what's going inside the country. It's significant, the anti-Nazi radio points out, that though broadcasts beamed to Germany from England repeat the German claims of successes in naval engagements in the channel, the Reich home radio has made no such statements. The events of today were studded with records, too. The greatest fleet of ships ever to set sail. 4,000 ships and thousands of lesser craft. The greatest army ever to strike at a hostile shore. That vast force of men and machines, tens of thousands of men increasing to hundreds of thousands, millions before it is over. And the greatest air assault ever delivered. Before the day began in the hours of darkness between midnight and dawn, thousands of British planes hurled more than 5,000 tons of bombs on the Nazi fortifications. Then more than 1,000 American heavy bombers took up the assault, and soon the total tonnage of bombs was more than 11,000. A British air officer remarks that the total tonnage of bombs dropped in this one day of invasion was greater than the amount that the Germans hurled on Britain during the entire six months of the Great Blitz. Huge Allied reinforcements of men and armor were pouring ashore tonight. Fixed German guns along the coast were literally blown apart by a 10,000-ton aerial barrage in the eight hours preceding the landings. And then a formidable fleet of American and British warships, including battleships with 16-inch rifles, stood close inshore and destroyed enemy bunkers and gun positions with point-blank fire. In their classroom of plastic and metal, our great-great-grandchildren are gathered, waiting for the lesson to begin. They'll be staring out through the glass walls, wishing they were anywhere in the world but stuck in a schoolroom, 
having to look at a lot more historical moving pictures flashed on the screen, hearing transcriptions of radio broadcasts that were given generations ago, staring down at microfilm newsreels showing the people of 1944 dressed in their funny clothes and living their funny, forgotten lives. Eisenhower, after having personally inspected and wished luck to a unit of airborne troops, addressed a ringing message to all the Allied invasion forces in which he declared, We will accept nothing less than full victory. Then, from a housetop somewhere on the English coast, the commander watched the great spectacle unfold. Leading all Allied ground troops in the invasion was General Sir Bernard L. Montgomery, Britain's most famed field commander, who whipped Marshal Erwin Rummel on the sands of Africa. He predicted three weeks ago that Rummel would try to knock us back into the sea. He described Rummel as a disruptor and forecast that to disrupt the invasion, he will try to hit us early. In a pre-battle message to his troops, Montgomery told them, To us is given the honor of fighting a blow for freedom which will live in history, and in the better days that lie ahead, men will speak with pride of our doings. I want every soldier to know that I have complete confidence in the successful outcome of the operations that we are now about to begin. Good luck to each one of you, and good hunting on the mainland of Europe. Well, my first reaction is like a prospective bridegroom left at the altar. But seriously, I cannot help but feel that at a time like this, my place should be at the side of my buddies. From the NBC newsroom in Hollywood, here's the latest version of the invasion battle coming from the enemy. Swedish correspondents in Berlin said the German high command expects new and larger landings before Wednesday dawn and declared that several divisions now are fighting in the big beachhead in some places hand-to-hand. These correspondents quoted Hitler's command as saying the invasion front stretches 240 miles from Calais to the Cherbourg Peninsula and to the Channel Islands. In a broadcast statement, the German high command described the fighting in the Cherbourg-Le Havre area as being in full swing and declared that everywhere along the invasion front, British and American troops are putting up a most tenacious resistance. Yet, young ladies and gentlemen, I wish you especially to realize and remember this. They yearn but for the end of battle, for their return to the haven of home. Some will never return. Night is falling on the greatest day in the history of all free people. D-Day, Tuesday, June 6, 1944. At dawn this morning, the supreme commander of our Allied invasion forces uttered two words. Two words that put an end to months of torturous waiting, months of not knowing. Those two fateful words were, let's go. Preceding the actual invasion fleet across the channel was a huge armada of little ships, minesweepers, which swept lanes straight to the designated landing points. The length of sweep wires used to tear loose the moored German mines stretched nearly 70 miles in all, the greatest mine-sweeping job in history. Some of the ships used still are on the secret list. Looks like we're going to have a night tonight. Get 
flying down through the sky and circling down. Maybe a hit plane. They got one. Tonight, throughout America, many fathers and mothers are wondering if their boy is lying on some beachhead, alone on some battlefield, wounded, perhaps dying. We've been told that the battle will be long and hard. The casualties will be heavy. Many of your loved ones will sacrifice their lives in this great march to victory, and we thought perhaps it would help you to know what your country and the combined strength of all the United Nations has done to ease the suffering and pain of our fighting men. Now, a pair of companion songs. First, the song of the amphibious forces, We're Going In. Then a brand new one for all the boys, Sergeant Marvin Long's, We're Coming Back. We're Going In, We're Coming Back. of the United States and our allies were crossing the channel in another and greater operation. It has come to pass with success thus far. And so, in this poignant hour, I ask you to join with me in prayer. Almighty God, our sons, pride of our nation, this day have set upon a mighty endeavor, a struggle to preserve our republic, our religion, and our civilization, and to set free a suffering humanity. Lead them straight and true. Give strength to their arms, stoutness to their hearts, steadfastness in their faith. They will need thy blessings. Their road will be long and hard. For the enemy is strong. He may hurl back our forces. Success may not come with rushing speed. But we shall return again and again. And we know that by thy grace and by the righteousness of our cause, our sons will triumph. They will be sore tried by night and by day without rest until the victory is won. The darkness will be rent by noise and flame. 
Men's souls will be shaken with the violences of war. American eyes and hearts tonight are turned beyond the blue horizon toward a new and happier day to come. The Glee Club and Gordon Goodman sing that fine old song of optimism, Beyond the Blue Horizon. again when peace is found and there's time for books and looks around at a country scene a tree serene that stands above a meadow green and in that tree you'll see a nest where the dove of peace has come to rest here now a new and stirring song for the man of destiny the foot soldier of the infantry we're on our way Gordon Berger sings with the Glee Club. American transport aircraft that flew with troops and equipment onto the continent was painted with broad blue and white stripes and carried colored lights, yet no fighters or heavy flak opposed it. The huge, brilliantly lighted armada stretched for more than 250 miles, continued the broadcast, which was recorded here at the CBS shortwave listening station. It traveled only a few hundred feet above the ground, and it took more than an hour to pass. It met only small arms fire, mostly from 50 caliber machine guns. Here is a late bulletin with a dateline Folkestone, England on it. It says German guns across the English Channel opened fire at 5 p.m. today for the second time since the invasion began, but ceased as soon as Royal Air Force planes appeared over them. Dr. Walsall, how rapidly are wounded men being treated in this invasion? Can you tell us about it? Even in the dispatches today, I noted that wounded men are being transported back to England where I know they're getting the best care that can be given. They do not wait four or five days now, but get the men into a base hospital within the 24 hours. At the United States Veterans Hospital in here in New York, 1,800 men, still hospitalized 25 years after World War I, were given the news by nurses. Patients in pajamas and bathrobes, walking on crutches and canes, gathered in the hospital lawns and bowed in silent prayer. With thy blessing, we shall prevail. 
over the unholy forces of our enemy. Help us to conquer the apostles of greed and racial arrogances. Lead us to the saving of our country and with our sister nations into a world unity that will spell a sure peace. A peace invulnerable to the schemings of unworthy men. And a peace that will let all men live in freedom, reaping the just rewards of their honest toil. Thy will be done, almighty God. Amen. Ladies and gentlemen, the President has just led the nation in prayer. We return you now to New York. Mr. Coleman. Especially for this broadcast over NBC, Miss Edna St. Vincent Millay has written a poem and prayer for an invading army. They must not go alone into that burning building which today is all of Europe. Say that you go with them, spirit and heart and mind. Although the body grown too old to fight a young man's war, or wounded too deeply under the healed and whitened scars of earlier battles, must remain behind. Lord, Father, who are we that we should wield so great a weapon for the right and rehabilitation of thy creature, man? Lo, from all corners of the earth we ask all great and noble to come forth, Converge upon this errand, in this task, with generous and gigantic plans. Hold high this torch, who will. Lift up this sword, who can. Ronald Coleman, in a poem and prayer for an invading army, written especially for this broadcast by Miss Edna St. Vincent Millay. This first reading of the poem was an exclusive feature in the NBC presentation of the world-shaking events of the day. gallant Navy. Join us, won't you, in a sincere prayer for our sailors, the Navy hymn.
we have a bulletin here from New York which gives us further details on the young British girl, Joan Ellis, who sent through the false flash three days ago announcing the opening of the European invasion. Joan Ellis, it says, the 22-year-old British teletype operator who sent that false flash three days ago, reporting the European invasion was very happily remembered by newspaper editors when D-Day finally arrived. The newsmen here found time to message expressions of agreement with James P. Rosemond, who was the managing editor of the Akron, Ohio Beacon Journal. He said, based on Joan Ellis' statement, asking America to forgive me, suggests AP editor's cable message to her. Ours would be, no one in Ohio concerned about invasion flash, good luck and carry on. That message was forwarded to the London Bureau of the Associated Press. Tell the British girl who flashed the invasion Saturday that we all love her and that she scooped the world, said the Mayfield, Kentucky messenger. Here is a flash from uh, Reuters in London which says many secret weapons were used for the first time by the liberating armies in the invasion of northwestern France this morning. Another song of our dreams of the future, a dream of tomorrow that will soon be here, a day of freedom and peace and a day when we will no longer wait and pray for our loved ones' return, a dream that will come true. Reporting the European invasion up to schedule, President Roosevelt announced today the loss of two United States destroyers and an LST, landing ship tanks, in the first push. These covered ships reported lost up to noon today, he told his news conference, adding aircraft losses were approximately 1%. A reporter asked the president whether the Tehran conference decided the place as well as the time for the invasion. Laughing, Mr. Roosevelt said, there were half a dozen places. Are there still half a dozen places? The president said the questioner knew his question was improper. And I'd like to thank the swell gang who help us hang this Tuesday night show together. Yes, sir. It's the last program of the season, and a couple of days ago, maybe that would have seemed important to us. But General Eisenhower and America's finest open a new season with a new show that tops anything on earth. A new season for freedom and a show that's playing the four corners of the globe. And when that show is over, freedom's enemies will never open again. Let's all hope and work and pray that it may be a short, successful season. This is the National Broadcasting Company. The entire facilities of NBC are geared to give you the latest invasion news. Bulletins will be broadcast as soon as they are received in the NBC newsroom. Stay tuned to WEIF New York. This is Charles Collingwood. We are on the beach today on D-Day. We've just come in. We caught a ride in a small boat which came in from our LST loaded with a thousand pounds of TNT half a ton of high explosive on this beach which is still under considerable enemy gunfire uh, no fires or anything of that kind here we go again another plane's come over looks like we're going to have a night tonight get it boys another one coming over Something burning is falling down through the sky, circling down. Maybe a hit plane. Here we go. They got one. They got one. We got that one. We got it right here. Hey, did we? Yeah. This one? Just off our port side in the sea. You said it. <laughs> I get the 
<laughs> Gun number 42 at our port, just beside the microphone, shot down the plane that fell into the sea. It was their first kill for this gun. The boys were all pretty excited about it. They're already thinking now of painting a big star on their turret. They'll be at that first thing tomorrow morning when it's daylight. Meantime, now the French coast is quieted down, and all around us is darkness. And I asked him how things were going, and he said it was pretty rough still. I asked him how far the troops had gone on inshore, and he said that they'd got five or six miles inshore, which sounds as though they're making good progress. Berlin claims that German reserves moved into positions around our lines during the night, and now they're launching terrific counterattacks. Reports of German reinforcements being rushed to Normandy have been confirmed. They've been confirmed by a dispatch from a correspondent aboard the cruiser Augusta somewhere off France. It says that the German 7th and 15th Armies, and they're commanded personally by General Rommel and made up of both infantry and armor, are rushing to Normandy. But be that as it may, we still hold very strong cards, inasmuch as we have command of the sea and the air. Challenges by the German Air Force so far have been very feeble. This place even smells like an invasion. It has a curious odor, which uh, we always associate with modern war. It's a smell of oil and high explosive and burning things. Oh. I'm lying down at full length here in the cornfield. Just in the hedges around me, I can see many men taking shelter behind the banks wearing their steel helmets while the terrific barrage goes on around us. In this barrage, we've got our 4.2-inch mortars, our field guns, our medium guns, all the guns of the fleet. The shells are whistling overhead now. Just listen to them. This is Richard de Mouvet calling you from over the English Channel, flying between England and France. We're on our way out south from the coast, crossing over towards Normandy with a wing of Spitfires on its way to take over the patrol and the protection of the Allied armies on the beaches and inland. A very lovely sight the Spitfires are on our port side, ranged in their ranks of three. And now we're going in, over the cliffs and the green fields of France, and over there to starboard, the big warships firing inshore towards the Cherbourg Peninsula, where the Americans are. Flash of their guns, just gone now. Another flash from a ship further down the line. And now we're winging in behind the Spitfires. They're spreading out now, right and left, searching for German aircraft as we follow them inland. Right ahead of us, there are great fires burning on the ground and clouds of white smoke coming up from the battlefront. There's a great pattern of France cratered and re-cratered where our bombs have fallen in the past. Here is the new landing strip lying out looking for all the world like a, an old established and magnificently prepared aerodrome. We're diving down and coming in over it right now, flying straight over the top. And there, in the distance, and all around us, is there in a great semicircle, is the battlefront. I can see the whole of it from east to west. Fires are burning in every direction. There's smoke going up in clouds. We've seen the guns firing and the ships firing in shore. And we're flying so low now that I can see individual people on the ground. There are anti-aircraft guns. There are some cows sitting in a field. More guns. And at that road junction, just below us, there's a military policeman waving them off. But you know, I can even see his red cap from here, but he's wearing that and not his tin hat. The roads are full of our transport. All our chaps driving on the right-hand side in the continental style. The welcome we got in France touched our hearts. Right in the battle, a few hundred yards beyond the beaches, with shells screaming both ways, 
I saw French women throwing roses at Canadian tanks as they passed and putting garlands of roses round the necks of marching infantry. An old woman said, Monsieur, we waited and waited, and sometimes we thought you would never come. But in the last few days, we had known it wouldn't be long. But we knew you were coming this morning when your bombs and shells started blowing our houses to pieces. I ran into my deep trench, and I was very content. I shook my fist at the Germans as they retreated past my house. A bent old woman in a black shawl bids us good day. She stayed in bed through it all, she says, but the ceiling fell in on top of her, and now she's no ha habitable home. So much the worse, monsieur, but it can't be helped. A barber invites us in for a shave, and just at that moment the guns from one of our cruisers in the bay open up and shells go hurtling overhead. We think they might unsteady his hand. We decline politely. The cure of this little Normandy church, two or three miles from Caen, wants me to say how sorry he is about these bells. His village has only just been liberated, and it's taken until yesterday to clean up the many German snipers left in hiding. When I asked the cure if we might record the bells of his church ringing in celebration of the village's freedom, he asked me to wait for a week. And this is why. They used to have a very lovely little carillon in this church. Only three bells, but they were very proud of it. And many of the villagers were expert bell ringers. But when the Allies freed the village, three German snipers hid in the square tower of the church. And for two nights, they were very troublesome. At last, they gave themselves up. But it was found that they had smashed the big bell of the carillon. Monsieur le Curé promised that if I would only wait a week, he would have the big bell repaired and you could hear the full carillon. But he added that in any case, they were going to ring the remaining two bells at once this morning to celebrate our coming. And I thought that you would rather hear the bells now, even though the big one has been smashed by the Germans, to let you know that the people of Normandy are celebrating their liberation, that church bells are ringing, and the villagers are going to Mass to give thanks for their freedom. Thank you for listening to this episode of Centuries of Sound. If you appreciate this work, please consider supporting Centuries of Sound at patreon.com slash centuriesofsound.